This is the Flannery Podcast, episode number 10. Trump is public enemy number one. Stay tuned. Trump is public enemy number one because he puts our safety and even our lives at risk. Those chants, let us in, that you can hear, are protesters in Lansing, Michigan, brought out from their dark places, believing that this epidemic is a hoax. Some malformed conspiracy, they believe, just ask them, it's a dark plot to harm them in some unknown way. These misfits are overrun with false information, bias, hate, and slanders, and their sources of inspiration are Fox, otherwise known as state TV, the tricky trolls, and the pronouncements from our chief agitator, Trump. Some are desperate to work, and that's a hard situation, and acting out of their fears. But what good are they to an employer, themselves, or customers, if when they work, they act as they did when they were protesting, not respecting safety practices, uh, not wearing masks, not practicing social distance, and because of this, they would on the job get sick or die. In the bargain, these reckless folk infect innocents because they don't believe there's any risk at all until it's too late. As I speak this, 1,171,230 persons are infected and 68,088 have died from this virus nationwide. Now the security squad for the protesters were camouflage came to intimidate, armed with high-power assault weapons, and unlike the rest of the protesters, <laughs> these guys wore masks. Chaos and anger filled the state capitol corridors. Trump told them to liberate Michigan, and a week about, about a week or so later, that's exactly what they tried to do. You know the expression about saying fire in a crowded theater? What about a nation of anxious people who can't get any straight talk from Liar Don, who encourages them to take risks instead of taking precautions? The guards at the Capitol during this protest stood stoic, assaulted by how the protesters crowded close against them, invaded their space. But these guards stayed the mob's effort to disrupt the legislators in the chamber behind them, discussing what exactly they should do about the virus in Michigan, should they continue to keep it locked down. Trump said afterwards that these protesters were very good people. Exactly how is that true? This remark by Trump is evocative of his earlier callous disregard for safety and good conduct when Jefferson's University in Charlottesville was the scene of another mob, again with gun-carrying nuts and hateful anti-Semitic and racist signs resulting in fights and one death. Fast forward to where we are today. Trump, blame shifter in chief, says it's up to the governors. This was after he was going to tell the governors what to do. And then someone showed him the Constitution, which reserves certain powers to the states, and so Trump backed off, but not really. He tried to have it both ways. Trump has interfered with his bully pulpit in every way he could, contradicting his administration's own safety guidelines. To encourage everyone to go back, almost no matter what the facts are, no matter what the guidelines say. 
Trump not only told his cult followers this is what he wanted, there was some behind-the-scenes financial help from conservative moneyed interests, business interests. These thugs came to the Michigan Capitol mimicking the worst of Trump, waving his banners, swastikas, Confederate flags, and pushing up against each other without any concern for safety. They were there to intimidate, not to persuade. Trump plainly believes that to be reelected, he needs lies and mirrors and wheels and springs to make it look like he has a terrific economy. But you and I know he does not, and there's no way he will. So what should he be doing? A better course for his re-election, although I'm opposed to it, and for the nation and its safety, would be to follow the science and go where the science takes us. That'd be his safe place. How could he go wrong there? But he tries to distort and torture things to where he wants them to be when science and facts can't get there. Trump is betting that citizens with no savings, unable to get unemployment or small business loans will risk their lives to go back to work even though many will get infected and some will die. Trump hopes what? That America won't notice the ill and the dead? Trump once said he could shoot someone in person and the ditto heads would stand by his side. This appears to be a variation on that theme. Now, don't think for a moment he cares at all about the danger to any worker who feels compelled to go back to work for reasons probably having nothing to do with what Trump says just to survive. Moscow Mitch, as I'm saying this, wants to pass legislation to protect employers from liability if workers get the virus if they go back to work. De rigueur. The White House and Moscow Mitch are on the same side of this bad idea. The Dems rightly object. So you have some idea how primitive is the understanding of these protesters. Whatever remedies some favor involving the virus, no rational thinker disputes the reason for social distancing, at least six feet. But this is what one of the protesters said in Michigan. How did they come up with this number of six feet? I think they just pulled it out of their rear ends. Maybe it's five. Maybe it's three and a half. Maybe it's eight. I don't know. So why six? There is a pretty clear reason why six feet is predicated upon how the virus is transmitted. This, of course, is aimed at trying to cut down the virus's spread, but you may be wondering why six feet. The reason is a little gross, but it's important. Experts believe the virus is mainly spread through droplets that come out of your mouth or nose. When an infected person speaks, exhales, coughs, or sneezes, the droplets travel about three to six feet before gravity pulls them to the ground. So stay six feet away from someone and you stop the spread. You heard uh, one protester who said, what's the six feet about? Sound a little like Leo Gorsi. I know that takes me back. Uh, it's important not just what he said, but how the crowd reacted, and they thought what he said was funny. Therefore, the social distancing made no sense to them. Some have even made songs about the six-foot separation, but they're, they're not discouraging it. They're accepting it.
Trump's infectious disease cadre has set forth threshold tests to get us to a point where we may reopen safely in stages. But some states are ignoring those thresholds and going forward anyhow. Half of the governors may have been intimidated into relaxing protections, though none of these states has had the declining numbers for two weeks prescribed by the national guidelines. So every governor who is relaxing the protections are ignoring the guidelines, carefully constructed by infectious disease experts. Science. Fauci explained how these guidelines work, a safe and prudent approach that some states are, to use his own words, leapfrogging. You know, Anderson, the, the message is to take a look at the clearly articulated guidelines for opening America again. Um, and if you take a look at them, even though the so-called 30-day mitigation period has ended, the first component of opening America again is what we call a gateway, which means that you need to have to go down over a 14-day period, incremental or decremental decreases in the number of cases that you have before you can even think about going to phase one. And then you stay a certain time in phase one, and then there's another checkpoint before you go to phase two, and another checkpoint before you go to phase three. So there really is, if you follow the guidelines, there's a continuity that's safe, that's prudent, and that's careful. So the concern that I have is that there are some states, some cities or what have you, who are looking at that and kind of leapfrogging over the first checkpoint. And I mean, obviously you could get away with that, but you're making a really significant risk that if you do that and you don't have in place the absolute clear-cut capability of identifying, isolating, and doing the contact tracing, when people do start blipping, because there's no doubt in my mind that when you pull back mitigation, you're gonna start seeing cases crop up here and there. And if you're not able to handle them, you're gonna see another peak, a spike. And then you almost have to turn the clock back to go back to mitigation. So that's the reason why I keep trying to articulate to the public and to the leaders, take a look at the guidelines. They don't tell you because you've reached the end of the 30-day mitigation period that all of a sudden you switch a light on and you just go for it. That's not the way to do it. Each state, each city, each region is gonna be a little different. And there may be some situations where people can go into that pretty quickly because they've already passed the first gateway. But others should not do it if they're still on the way up and they haven't plateaued. So that's really my Fauci concern. talks science, and he talks clearly, and he talks sen sensibly. Trump doesn't want him talking sense on the Hill. And so Trump is refusing to let him testify before the House on what is going on. Now, this, part, this fits part of a theme. Trump doesn't want the facts known, doesn't want testing, seems to try to uh, sit pouting in a room while saying he's doing more than, in fact, he's doing. Uh, a good example that he doesn't want the truth out is when he fired an HHS watchdog, the IG Christie A. Grimm, a career investigator and an auditor who has served in Republican and Democratic administrations who found severe shortages at hospitals combating coronavirus. That is testing kits, delays in getting coronavirus results, and widespread shortages of masks and other equipment at U.S. hospitals. Ignoring the facts, Trump claimed the report, though confirmed, was somehow or other politically motivated. 
Every dispute with Trump ends with slanders against the person who deigned to contradict the brute in the West Wing with the facts. Sergeant Friday, on the other hand, could have thanked Christie as he knew only to ask for the facts, ma'am. Just the facts, ma'am. You heard it right. Just the facts, ma'am. When I was a younger lawyer, I thought the IGs were a great idea to route out waste and corruption. I played with the idea of working in that job for the Department of Labor. I didn't do it, but I studied it carefully and was excited about the independence the statute created for these positions. Obviously, that's changed. There's not much independence with Trump in the West Wing. It was most peculiar when Trump says to the government, you have to get what you need to do your job, meaning the kits and the like, but then he doesn't help get that. You've heard Cuomo say how backward that is when we have a national crisis, that the national government is not doing anything about it or enough. So each governor has struggled to find a way to get this done, to get masks and to get test kits and everything else. Uh, nearby Maryland Governor Larry Hogan bought a supply of test kits, 500,000 COVID-19 tests from South Korea. And that makes a lot of sense given the success Korea has had with their outbreak. It took uh, Governor Hogan 22 days to close that deal. Hogan's wife, Yumi, Hogan said, helped him land the order. Hogan has had to hide the kits in Maryland in an undisclosed location defended by the National Guard and state police. Now, why is that? Because the federal government wants to seize them from Hogan and the citizens of Maryland. Hogan had the Korean plane land in Baltimore, so it couldn't be said that the delivery involved any other state, so it didn't have to cross any other borders of any other state. Hogan said this payload was like Fort Knox to us. The National Guard is distributing the tests in Maryland. The federal government has been frustrated. But FEMA has diverted shipments in other states. In fact, in Massachusetts, masks that Governor Charlie Baker bought for his state were confiscated by the federal government. I've mentioned this before in an earlier po podcast, but in Ibsen's Enemy of the People, which parallels in so many ways the story that we're living through, the good Dr. Stockman, not Dr. Fauci, has made a report that the baths in the town are polluted, and he thinks that people will be glad he's given this warning of safety. Now, the paper in the town that would have originally published it then changed their mind because it would crater the town's economy, business before safety. At a meeting of the town, Dr. Stockman reveals that his father-in-law's tannery has been leaking poisons into the baths. For this, the truth, he's declared an enemy of the people, when he was, in truth and fact, a friend of the people. There have been slanders against Dr. Fauci because he talks about the science, as did the good Dr. Stockman. Now talk about what's upside down. The enemy of the people here is a president who lies to the people, that compromises their safety, that withholds the intelligence he had that could have saved thousands of lives when he said there was no problem at all, and who continues to do what he can to diminish the access to the truth and to information that would better save and protect us from this coronavirus. The noted astronomer with the Haydn Planetarium in New York, Neil deGrasse Tyson, says, we are conducting a kind of experiment here. Listen to what he had to say. Hardly scientifically literate, but what I will say of this virus, I think we're in the middle of a massive experiment worldwide. The experiment is, will people listen to scientists? 
In, in this case, referring to medical professionals, um, are you washing your hands and are you taking these precautions? These are warnings offered by scientists. To me, if we all listened and all paid attention, don't get freak out, mm -hmm. right? Don't live in a, a life lived in fear is a life half lived. So are we going to respect the science of Dr. Fauci or are we going to be taken in by the lies of Trump and his cohorts? Michigan has already told us what they're going to do. They're going to follow the science. The governor won't do anything else. Michigan knows it has a problem and is locked down until things get better. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer described the assault, that is the protest in the Capitol, and how she plans to continue the health and safety precautions. So I want to thank all of our dedicated Michigan State Police officers and the House and Senate sergeants who kept people safe yesterday. I also want to make sure to thank the Peckham workers and staff who are cleaning and disinfecting the Capitol today. And as always, I want to thank the millions of Michiganders who did their part by staying home. Yesterday's scene at the Capitol was disturbing, to be quite honest. Swastikas and Confederate flags, nooses and automatic rifles do not represent who we are as Michiganders. This state has a rich history of people coming together in times of crisis. Our brave soldiers fought to keep the Union intact during the Civil War. We came together as the arsenal of democracy to defeat the Nazis because we were united against a common enemy. Now we must channel that same energy against our common enemy, which is COVID-19. I know that some people are angry and I know many are feeling restless. I know that people are itching to get back to work and I get it and I respect it. And it's okay to feel that way. There's nothing that I want more than to just flip the switch and return to normal. But that's not how it's going to work, unfortunately. The only way we can get through this and take the next steps forward is if we all continue to do our part. There are many questions we can consider about this pandemic. But after the health of the nation, I suppose food is a close second. Public enemy number one is still the theme of this podcast, but not through to the end. And Trump is that enemy of the people. This pandemic has forced us to think about how we might do things differently and better when this virus has spent its poison and is no longer a challenge. My fear is that we will not have learned all the lessons of the pandemic. Our skies are clear. What have we learned that could make our environment cleaner and safer? when this is finally over. Those who can telecommute and have only telecommuted because of the virus maybe should think about doing more of that when the all clear signal is sounded. To renew a prescription, I had a telemedicine conference with a doctor and he said there's no question we'll be doing more of this from now on after the pandemic. We've learned to consume what we need in part because we couldn't do otherwise and be safe. Maybe that should encourage us to think less about acquiring things that we really don't need. We have seen how our society refuses to share the prosperity of productivity 
with the workers who made that prosperity possible, creating a cavern of compensation, separating those who make $60,000 or less so much more poorly off as compared with those who make more. And that's without making a comparison with those in the top 1% of the wealth in our nation. Today, this Sunday when I'm making this podcast, I want to talk about the factory farms who recently closed because of the coronavirus and how Trump wants to force them to open. But I also want to talk about the threat these factory farms pose to workers, consumers, and the environment. In part, this is because of the indifference of businessmen and many employers. I got a glimpse into the mind of most businessmen when I was a student at Columbia Engineering, conducting a study about how the World Trade Center managed the array of materials necessary to build the Twin Towers. The short answer was that there was a complex of locations in the regions where material was stored until needed, a kind of uh, just-in-time PERT diagram. The World Trade Center was a hole in the ground in lower Manhattan, to the west, looking over the Hudson River when I visited, and I interviewed foremen on site at the huge gaping hole in lower Manhattan. I learned they placed the facade columns in the structure to be close together and designed dampers to prevent swaying in the heights they sought to achieve, 1,360 feet high, 28 floors high. They did anticipate a plane could accidentally fly into the tower, but they prepared the building for a collision with a 727, not a 767. I also learned that about 200 of the 500 men working on the building who would walk on narrow girders high above Manhattan were Mohawks. The foreman said the heights don't bother them. I've heard Mohawks say it's nothing special, though it really is. The foreman told me that winds would wash some number of these workers off the building as the building climbed ever upward, and they would die. He offered estimates, I don't now recall, as this was sometime in 1968 or 69. There was no talk about how to protect these true skywalkers from falling and dying. It was just a matter-of-fact observation. That was the business. Collateral damage for a risk the worker assumed to work. I've been thinking about this indifference when listening to the arguments these days about forcing meat and processing plants to open and to reopen more generally every business across the nation. However, this aspect of the pandemic concerned with the food chain forces a consideration and synthesis of so many wrong and cruel turns I thought it more interesting to consider, although I expect I can only touch upon the most salient points. It begins with Upton Sinclair, if you think about it, a writer who uncovered corruption, a muckraker of the first order, famously repeated the following, and often, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. That's a concern we have today. It is the weakened bargaining position of one man in a world that resists collective bargaining or bargaining. You can take it or leave it. That's the attitude. Clarence Darrow, another hero of most lawyers, fought some of these battles between labor and business, and it was a contact sport then, and it is now. Sinclair uncovered intolerable labor practices, unsanitary conditions, and suspect beat that he wrote about in his famous and haunting book, The Jungle. 
He said these processing plants, quote, they use everything about the hog except the squeal. Sinclair wrote his book, The Jungle. He self-published it in 1906 as the issue was so important to him. And he thought his objective when writing the book was to help the abused workers. Instead, the consumers were more concerned about the fact they may be eating tubercular beef and growing ill. So that's where the book found its audience with the consumer. Sinclair thought readers would be upset how the workers were abused. He said, I aimed it at the public's heart, and by accident, I hit it in the stomach. Sinclair wrote, the rich people not only had all the money, they had all the chance to get more. They had all the knowledge and the power, and so the poor man was down, and he had to stay down. What Sinclair wrote in 1906 remains as true today. We are reminded of it every day during this pandemic. We might consider what we know now as another opportunity to set things straight. Let's start with Smithfield Foods, a true factory farm, a truly large pig producer with sales of $15 billion in sales a year. A few years ago, 7 million gallons of hog waste escaped from large cesspools in several counties in North Carolina and flushed into the South River and the Cape Fear River. The water was full of nutrients, so we call it. Yes, that's hog shit and piss. The kind of pollution that means dead fish and algae blooms. Now, these cesspools, Smithfield and other meat processing plants keep, are called lagoons. Isn't that charming? Isn't that sweet? A lagoon, not a cesspool. This is just a sample of ag market double talk. A true lagoon is a stretch of salt water separated from the sea by a low sand band or a coral reef. That's not what these pools are. The waste from the hogs falls through slatted floors into holding troughs, and it's flushed then into these large cesspools. That's right, a large earthen pit. No salt water, no coral reef, no lagoon, and that's what the industry calls these stinking pits. What you have is water, pig excrement, and an anaerobic bacteria. The bacteria digests the slurry, giving the cesspool its pink bubblegum color. They are large and pink, and they stink, these so-called lagoons. In North Carolina, there is close to 10 million pigs producing 10 billion gallons of manure annually. When these lagoons get too full, Smithfield and the other processing plants pump the mixture through a device like you'd water your lawn and spray a mist of this stuff into the air in the nearby fields, and they tell you they are using the manure to enrich the field. They have a, an excuse for everything. The odor in the area is tolerated by low-income and minority families, and they are, if caught outside, sprayed with this fecal mist. This compound of nutrients gets into the groundwater and compromises the wells the residents use. No, this is not good for anyone living nearby, not for their health or their mortality. Another multisyllabic word you should know that gives the air of regularity to the practice is concentrated animal feeding operations, or CAFOs. The emphasis is on concentrated, and feeding really means fattening. And the story of these operations is as many pigs as possible, limited in movement as much as possible, speeding up their growth as much as possible, and 
increasing the number of pigs that are produced as much and possible reed killed at the cheapest cost, including what is paid to the workers. That means thousands of pigs crammed into filthy windowless sheds and wire cages or metal crates, unable even to turn around in place. Smithfield and other CAFOs use antibiotics so that the pigs, and elsewhere in other industries as well, grow faster. And this canon has led to antibiotic-resistant bacteria, which is dangerous to us, the consumer, the ones who receive this meat. These antibiotics help pigs gain 3% more weight. There's a, there's a profit in size. But if a person eats the bacteria-resistant pork because it's improperly cooked, he may not respond to antibiotics. Smithfield has an eight-story white box in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, the ninth largest processing facility in the United States, processing, get this, 19,500 hogs a day. The local media got a tip in March that an employee at the plant had the virus. On March 19th, Smithfield said they were staying open. They, yeah, somebody had had it, but they took all the precautions and everything was okay. But the tipster understood from other sources that there was more than one person who had the virus. The workers stood side by side, less than a foot away from their colleagues on production lines. They passed in and out of crowded locker rooms, walkways, and cafeterias. How could there only be one? Estimates of the mean hourly wage range from 14 to $16 an hour for these workers. Those hours are long, the work is grueling. The workforce at Smithfield is made up largely of immigrants and refugees from places like Myanmar, Ethiopia, Nepal, Congo, and El Salvador. There are 80 different languages spoken at that plant. Soon it was clear that 80 had been infected. Then it turned out there were 190. Then it turned out there were 238. These numbers were released after the first death in the plant. April 15th, the plant closed. There were more cases than on the USS Teddy Roosevelt or in Cook County, Illinois. There was no shelter in place order in South Dakota, thus the wisdom of the governor. Smithfield Foods is based in Smithfield, Virginia, and is wholly owned by a Chinese corporation. On April 27, Chairman John Tyson of Tyson Food, another food processing company that sells food products from frozen chicken nuggets to raw pork, announced the food supply chain is breaking. Some might say it was already broken before the virus, but the virus closed its doors. Tyson said he had a responsibility to feed America. Given the product and how they get it to market, it was somewhat am amusing that Tyson said what he did was as essential as health care. Hundreds of ill workers and deaths prompted the closure of Smithfield, Tyson, and G JBS USA. In an ad, Tyson asked the government for help. But there were reports that workers were close together, had no masks, and were told to come to work even if they were sick. These three factory farming operations account for 15% of pork production. Do we think that's a breakdown in food supply? This industry is notorious for bad working conditions, as I've indicated. Some workers have said so anonymously, and some have said publicly. Here's an anonymous commentator. Well, they didn't have enough material or masks and things like that to provide to us, so they would start giving us different types of rags and stuff. Here's another person. It kind of scares me and it makes me angry that the company is willing to open 
without testing people. These workers need work, but they don't want to die. And that's why the industry has had a fair amount of absenteeism when they were recently open. But don't forget what Sinclair said. It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. This past Tuesday, Trump issued an executive order purporting to force these factory farms to reopen and to get their workers back in harness. And there was a lot of talk about what it meant. But more people should read the executive order to see what it meant. Trump invoked the Defense Production Act. We should pay attention to the name of the act, Defense Production Act. And what Trump's spin room doctors said, what he could do to get these factories up and running with this act. But they are not involved in defense production. There is no government contract here. These are private businesses, and ironically, Smithfield is owned by the Chinese. The title of the act is the Defense Production Act. This is not about the national defense. There are various cases talking about what national defense means. In a case from 1941, Gorin against the United States, the court wrote that the government says the national defense, quote, is a genetic concept of broad connotations referring to the military and naval establishments and the related activities of national preparedness. And the court said it agreed with that. Does Trump's executive order have anything to do with military and naval establishments? Nah, I don't think so. Trump wrote an executive order that said he was doing this, get this, to ensure a continued supply of protein for Americans. That's not about the national defense. And there are plenty of other sources of protein. Uh, <laughs> Big Mac may be the only protein that Trump knows about. Trump blithely disregards the criteria in the statute, although he says it's satisfied. Under the heading of the two-part requirements that he looked at. The heading was critical and strategic materials. By what leap of understanding do we think the statute is referring to protein? There are two tests for invoking this section. And the first, is this scarce and critical material, namely protein, essential to the national defense? Well, I don't think it's scarce. I don't know that it's critical. And it's not essential to the national defense, as we understand what national defense means. The second test is that the requirement for such material, protein, cannot otherwise be met. Who are we kidding? There are other sources of protein. Since this is a device to get people to work, the act says that it can't be invoked involving contracts of employment, meaning those are excluded from the act. So if in any way you could say that this act had any application to this situation involving protein, no contract of employment could be affected, meaning no worker in any of these companies in food processing could be affected by an invocation of this act. Truth is, this act has everything to do with regulating government contracts and nothing to do with third-party private companies. There are some immunity sections in the code, but they have nothing to do with this case. I've scratched my head why no one I can find, and that means somebody might have said this because maybe I didn't look far enough, that this executive order was only another excuse for Trump to sign his name ever so carefully, straight up and down, in broad strokes, like the posts of offense on the Mexican border. The business plan for these factory farm involves abusing animals, workers, and the food they supply. Are we going to support this with tax dollars? Are we going to risk workers in these places? We should perhaps remind uh, ourselves 
that there are other sources of proteins, and they are in fields across America from sea to shining sea. And I think we need to get some smarter legal minds to write this stuff that they pass off to America as law and legal, because I think a first-year law student would tear apart this executive order, and I don't know why we haven't heard more from the Hill about it. We need some updated muckraking in this industry, top to bottom, and critical reforms. And some of them are obvious by just stating the problems. We've come a long way since uh, Upton Sinclair, and we haven't come a long way since Upton Sinclair, since we still have the same tragedies in this industry. In the next sec segment, I'm going to talk a little bit about clean meat, meaning no animal dies. But it's probably of little interest to vegetarians because it's still meat. It's not ready yet for general consumption, but it will be part of our reforms in the food industry going forward. Uh, it'll be part of our reboot, if you will, especially if we give the boot to the orange menace in the West Wing. Stay tuned. Hello, this is John Flannery, and uh, I'm calling uh, Paul Shapiro. First off, what is clean meat? Well, clean meat, John, is real meat that is grown from animal cells as opposed to animal slaughter. So right now, many people are familiar with plant-based meat that are on market where you take plant proteins and assemble them together to make them look and taste like real meat. But they're not real meat. Clean meat, though, is not an alternative to meat. It's not a substitute for meat. It is real, actual animal meat, just divorced from the need to raise and slaughter animals to obtain it. Now, when the cells are taken from these living animals to reproduce meat, if that's the correct term, how much meat can we expect? Literally tons. So from a sesame seed sized biopsy from an animal's muscle, you can grow literally tons of meat from the cells that are in there. It's a truly incredible process. I mean, it's almost miraculous. If you think about like Jesus multiplying <laughs> these the fish, right? This, right. Biblical, this biblical miracle where he has the two fish and he feeds the multitudes of 5,000. And it's not that dissimilar to take uh, microscopic cells from a fish and produce tons of fish meat from them is truly like a modern day miracle. Uh, so uh, uh, he was the precursor to this uh, biotechnology. Uh... Yeah, he was the first queen meat producer. <laughs> That's perfect. I thought I'd give some uh, relief from the reality here and talk a little bit about uh, some aspects of uh, the small farm we have uh, so that... Uh, <laughs> Maybe you can clear your palate of the evil that is our chief executive and his lackeys. So I hope you enjoy this. And uh, when it finishes, I hope you'll remember to uh, not only subscribe, but come around next week as well so you can hear what we have to say. Thank you. We've never taken time to enjoy what's all around. The yellow light of a resting sun earthbound, the encircling vines of green framing what we've absently minded rendered unseen. Bales of hay in a field the horses mostly consider a good deal. The pigs make the most amusing sounds, especially when it's food they found. Eucephalus, curious and all eyes, would rather stroll than fight off flies. The goat craves food and attention too, not so far from our, our cows that moo. 
It's a union, us with them, of one, undivided, that done right makes us satisfied. I hope you enjoyed this episode. That's all for this week. Please subscribe and join us again next week. And in the meantime, stay safe. Thank you.